This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I should say host, but also realtors in Vancouver with Oakland Realty in downtown. Yeah. Offices in the Canby Corridor as well. Right. All over. Yeah. No, I actually think uh, Oakland's opening a Victoria office. I, I saw something about that. Growing, growing. Sponsor uh, of the show. Sponsor of the show. Growing dramatically. Anyways, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Bo Jarvis from West Group. President of West Group, past guest fan favorite. How exciting is it that we got Bo back on the show? You know what? I've heard from a lot of people over the years that uh, Bo Jarvis was their favorite guest. Oh, wait. Uh, over there. Yeah. He was, was it? 20, what, 2020, 2019? He was on before. <laughs> he was on before. Yeah. I don't think it was that long ago. I don't. It, was, it wasn't, wasn't before COVID. too. Really? It was, it was maybe during COVID. It, this could all be solved with my chat GPT app. <laughs> or uh, or VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? It, the point is, is Bo's been on. He was a fantastic guest. A lot of great feedback. And he's back on the show today. We're talking about everything from kind of the insider knowledge of what's going on in the market, but then also exciting areas for opportunity, what's going on with building, what's going on with politics around building. Everything gets covered today. Yeah, I feel like this was uh, a few things about this conversation. One is, I feel like Bo Jarvis is the ultimate insider, whether you're talking politics, development, or market intel, market knowledge. Like he's, He's the guy to talk to, so it's so exciting to have him on the show. One thing about this conversation that is, I think, a little bit unfortunate is it happened like a day before the big NDP housing shift around Skytrains happened. Oh, right. But yeah, so this happened right before uh, that, which is which is huge, which we're, we're going to obviously tackle on the show, uh, just yeah. not today. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. And, and, you know, I there's so many things being thrown at the housing market or whatever, right? It's it's hard to know. It's I feel like everything you got a timestamp right now because it's just like you talk about it. And then the next day it's like, oh, they held the rate or they, they increased the rate or or now you can do this with single family lots or whatever, right? But it seems like it's changing every minute. It's funny because, yeah, in, in some markets, it's the market that's dynamic. Yeah. In other markets, <laughs> as of right now, market less so, but man, lots of lots of shifts and changes in, in the policy world, that's yeah, for sure. of course, of course. But before we get to that, Matt, I should say this episode is sponsored by Scalina Real Estate, which is our real estate company in Vancouver. Today's featured listing, which is over at Vancouver Real Estate podcast.com is 201-869 Beatty Street, which is at the Hooper building. This is a building that was built in 1910 originally. It's a warehouse conversion converted in 1999. Beautiful old growth cedar kind of throughout. It's got exposed brick, over 100-year-old brick kind of throughout the building. Really, really well-maintained building. This is a one bed, which is just, it's, it's, 
overheight ceilings. You've got like an old growth cedar beam right in the living room. It's kind of throughout. It's beautiful. It's that got that warehouse conversion style uh, vibe, which uh, everybody that comes through it is like, this is amazing. Rooftop deck on the uh, in the building as well with views of uh, Yale Town, water views, mountain views. This is a phenomenal offering and it's on at $599,900. You know what? It's a standout. You know, you often say uh, in markets like this, it's the tier one properties that stand out. And uh, and this is definitely unique and tier one. Uh, check it out at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And while you're there, you might want to check out now, is it our most downloaded document of all time? I think it is. It's called The Soul Plan. It is. It's The Soul Plan. And uh, for people that don't know what The Soul Plan is, it's uh, sold stands for Start on Launch Date. It is a step-by-step guide to work your way backwards from when you plan to list. So it's getting your home ready for market, which is really a valuable guide. It's based on well over a decade of experience, hundreds of homes sold. This is really just step-by-step. It's, it's there and it's evergreen. So if you're selling today, if you're selling three years from now, you're going to want this document. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, hit sell with us. And uh, I think other than that, Adam, we should be we should be good to go to talk to Bo. This is, uh, this is a standout in my mind, just as it was the first time around. Yeah, love having Bo on the show and uh, fantastic that he came down to the studio. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sonehouse, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sonehouse offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Bo Jarvis, president of West Group. How you doing, Bo? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I should say past guest fan favorite and uh, in the studio again. So thanks for coming down. And, yeah. and maybe the one of the most requested, it's funny, but I mentioned to you on the way up, but I've had about half a dozen people in the last like maybe month or two just being like, when are you getting Bo Jarvis back? So <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's uh, it's great to have you back in studio. It, it was an unforgettable first episode, but no no pressure today. <laughs> All right, okay, okay, no pressure, fair enough. Uh, so Bo, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. President of West Group Properties, husband, father, 
Right. <laughs> and um, right now, I, I feel like major government lobbyist right. <laughs> for our industry. I feel like I'm doing that probably almost 85% of the time. And I don't think lobbyist is a pleasant word for me <laughs> here. But um, yeah, that's I, I think that's mostly about me. <laughs> if I remember correctly, is it five kids? Yeah, five kids. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, All from the same wife, because that's your next question. I think I said the exact same thing last time. I said the same thing to everybody. Uh, yeah. Maybe just before we get into, because we want to get through your past and, and how you got into real estate and everything, but what, like, so you're working with the, can you talk a little bit about your role with the government or how you've been? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I've always been, um, I've always felt that advocacy for our industry is extremely important. So we've kind of built that into our DNA at West Group. So we participate in as much government advocacy and at all levels of government for our industry and for our company. And as we've increasingly gone into what we're now consistently calling an affordability crisis, that advocacy has become ever more important. Government intervention as a result of the crisis that we find ourselves in is at an all-time high. I actually think it's a good thing. I think that the, that the fact that governments are putting a lens on, and we'll just, we'll just delineate housing out of real estate development. We'll just talk about housing right now. But I think that the fact government are putting a greater lens and they're getting more involved in a meaningful way out of necessity right? Because they're all not going to get reelected unless they figure some of this stuff out. But I think it's positive that they're getting more involved. But we have to engage and collaborate with them to make sure that there's sustainable outcomes from a policy perspective. And so that's why I think government advocacy is really important. Because I, without saying what I just said, I could say, you know, I'm, I'm a 85% of my time lobbying government. People think that that's just for the benefit and the profitability of our business. And that's not the case. It's to generate sustainable policy on the housing front where we can move forward and, and government and industry is aligned so that we can actually make an impact on the issue. And so that's why it's important. You know, I was thinking about this the other day because, I mean, developer, the development community and the real estate industry has kind of been beating the supply drum for a very long time. And, and we went through that period of, you know, demand-side measures for a very long time, right? Mm-hmm. Where it was like, okay, the foreign buyer tax, spec tax, the list goes on, right? Why do you think it took so long to get here to where we are now? It's a great question. I think that, and I remember actually we talked about this during the last episode that we did, but I, I think that there, it, it wasn't, notwithstanding the, the law of supply and demand and the science of economics has been around for, you know, since the dawn of time and, and the, the supply and demand in relation to price is, you know, it's there and we all have it. We can all rationalize that. Nobody was certain that supply was the issue except for people in the real estate industry because we're looking at the data constantly, right? We're watching metrics. We're looking at uh, listing to sales ratios and we're, we're looking at that this month versus the same month two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And we're seeing these trends and things like that. And then, of course, there's immigration and we're watching more people come to our country and our cities and things like that. So it, I feel like for us in the industry, it was really quite evident. But it, for policymakers, academics, you know, 
armchair quarterbacks, because everybody's an armchair quarterback in our industry, is that it, it they that was not certain for for them. And so you saw a lot of academics and you know, and I could name a few, and I won't, but <laughs> um, <laughs> they've probably been on this podcast. They have been. Um, you know, they were there was well, it's money laundering, it's foreign buyers, and there were academics that were going and pulling titles to all kinds of homes on the west side of Vancouver and looking at the uh, last name of the people and all this kind of stuff. And it was sort of like, no, 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 this is why. He hasn't been on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Talked about a lot. Just never been on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've actually invited him to come to my office and have a conversation. And no, he has never no actually, I think we did <laughs> once invite him and he, yeah. he, he's not keen. Yeah. Anyway. So um, I think that that was just out there. And so when we have an issue like this that we have now that has become ever more acute, Paul, it becomes political. And, it be- and when things come, become political, they're automatically made divisive. And so when things are divisive, you have different sides of things and different positions and people root themselves in those positions. They get in their own echo chambers and, um, and they try and, and, and create an argument that's rooted in all kinds of information to support that position. And so that's what was going on with it. And that's what created the demand side measures. The demand side measures were also far more politically expedient than supply side measures. Of course, right? sure. Right? They're a lot you easier. You know, tax yeah. the foreign buyers, tax the speculators, you know, tax the wealthy landowners. These are all really positive things when they were pulled for the politicians to do. We said from day one in the industry that that's not going to help anything. We need to have a conversation about supply. And so here we are after all of these. And I'm, you know, I just made mention of like three out of probably 10 or 15 demand side measures that have been implemented and executed over the last decade or call it five years, five to 10 years. And our real estate has only gotten more unaffordable for housing. And so I, I just, I think that that's now... There's nothing left to discuss but supply. Mm-hmm. We tried everything else and it didn't work. And so I think that that's, and I, I would say that the supply side of the argument is gaining a lot of traction. Politicians and policymakers are finally sitting down and engaging in collaborative discussion and dialogue around the issues. And we're looking at metrics. We're looking at data. And the data is irrefutable. So I, I think that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bo, I think somebody out there is listening and going, man, the president of one of the largest private development companies in Western Canada sees 85% of his energy going to, to lobbying the government. Is that unique to the Canadian development industry right now or West Group? Like, or are there, I, I'm just, this is a genuine question. Like in other industries, do presidents of large scale companies do that like it seems like is it is it a signal of the moment we're in and the crisis we're in that that is taking up so much of your time I think it's a couple of things. Number one, it is a signal of the moment and the time that we're in. And I, I, I think you would find a number of leaders of organizations such as ours engaged in this way right. right now. I would say, as I said earlier, that I've always felt it's really important. So even when the issue wasn't so acute, I was always trying to be involved in helping to shape, again, I call it sustainable policy, right? Policy that's going to yield outcomes that are equitable and fair. And so I've always been involved in that, you know, uh, we, we, and I built it into the DNA of our company. So our entire development group and some of our asset management group will, are engaged in policy. We sit on committees and boards and things like that to help 
to to be there and to be present and to be part you know participants in the shaping of policy that's not only going to impact our business but impact our communities and so that's really really important i just having said all of that i just sent an email to the urban development institute udi which i used to be chair of the board and i said what we are doing right now is not sustainable our entire development group is focusing literally in the, especially in the last few weeks and we can talk about some of the reasons why there's the gst rebate on rental there was right. a big Metro Vancouver fee increase fiasco, I'll call it that, where the federal housing minister got involved on Twitter and all this kind of stuff. But I sent an email to UDI saying, this is not sustainable. Our development group isn't even doing real estate development anymore. Right. We're engaging in political conversations and advocacy and lobbying and things like that. And so I think we've probably crossed the threshold of balance. Mm. The GST rebate, does that do anything or there's just too many stakeholders that are now trying to trying to take that 5%. I think so the 5% rebate on purpose-built rental. So that's something that we had advocated for, God, for a really long time, call it even 15 years. It was a promise from the federal government when the federal liberals got into power, mm-hmm. when Trudeau got in power. It was on his list. It's there. You can look it up. Yeah. Uh, and and sorry, just to be clear for listeners not aware, that's the removing the 5% GST on new purpose-built rental. That's that- correct. Yeah, so destroys pro formas. Yeah, and so how it works is it's it's called the rule of self supply, and so we will build a rental building for our own portfolio. We will not sell. It. There's no transaction involved, and when the building is built and complete and occupied, and we're with tenants, we have to cut a check to Ottawa for GST for five percent of the entire value, including the land, which could be like ten million. Oh, bucks. yeah. In some cases, it's millions, absolutely. Yeah. And so it's been a big sort of issue discussed as to, that's why it was on their platform when they were elected that they were going to do something about it. And there's been a huge reluctance to do so because it's a lot of money. And so politically, uh, I think that the federal liberals are finally, you know, they're they 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 weren't linking their immigration policy to housing policy and infrastructure policy like schools and flush toilets and all that kind of stuff. And now it's all coming to a head. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of spinning and there's, and, and more recently they came out and said, okay, we're going to finally exempt purpose-built rental buildings from paying GST at the end. We're going to finally do that to help stimulate the development of rental supply. So it's, it's very positive. However, they only did it on a go-forward basis. So as of the date of that announcement, when you move forward with a project, you will, that exemption will apply. And that's great. However, there are tens of thousands of rental units in buildings currently under construction that have survived this sort of crazy cost inflation, interest rate inflation, or, you know, increased environment that are severely at risk of being viable when they come to the end. And those projects have had equity calls and all kinds of things. The developers of those projects will have difficulty redeploying capital into new projects. So the industry is currently advocating to include currently under construction rental projects in that exemption. And that's like a, we've been advocating for that for the last three weeks, like almost on a daily basis with the feds. So it's been, it's been a bit of a wild ride. So, so the, 5% 5% exemption is is good. There could be more done. 
Can we talk about Metro Vancouver? And was, <laughs> was it literally, because it did seem like it was almost literally a direct response, uh, although maybe not. <laughs> maybe just timing. But yeah. <laughs> at the same time, it's like everybody's like, how are we going to make anything feasible? Well, clear, right? clearly at the federal level, like the Twitter thing, yeah. like there was a, they, they clearly thought the timing was suspicious at the very least. Mm-hmm. The, it, it's really interesting that that all went down. And I'm glad it did. We have been calling on government to have a look at what's going on with all of these different fees, levies, and taxes for quite a long time. It's starting to gain some traction. So the theme is fees, levies, and taxes by multiple levels of government. So CMHC and UDI, as well as a think tank out of Ottawa, I can't remember uh, the name off the top of my head, have all come out with reports that suggest that the taxes, fees, and levies by various levels of government on new housing equate to 20 to 30% of the cost of new housing. So it's been this pile on, right? And it's diminished our returns significantly to the point where the risk-reward balance is totally out of balance. <laughs> and, and we question as to whether it makes sense to deploy new capital into housing. And we will continue to do that, but many are questioning this. Um, and so the Metro Vancouver fee increase thing really shone a light on this issue where the federal government comes out with a rebate of GST to stimulate the supply of housing. And two days later, Metro Vancouver announces their fee increase to cover like over $30 billion worth of bad, frankly, badly needed infrastructure, Mm -hmm. for sure. Again, the immigration thing, all this kind of stuff. But that fee increase completely eroded the benefit that the feds put out two days earlier. Right. And so it became, and, and, and it was perfect that it happened that way because all of a sudden everybody was like, wait a second, what's going on here? And we're sort of like, we've been saying this for years. There's no coordination amongst governments about fees. Every municipality is increasing their DCCs and their community amenity contributions without any sort of coordinated cumulative impact on the cost of new housing. And it's not only the cost of new housing, it's also a developer's ability to start a new project. Right. Because Mm. it all ties to the bank financing and the performa and the underwriting of the project. And so it was a big fiasco. Um, We were very aggressively engaged in advocacy on that issue. And I would encourage your listeners to watch the Metro Vancouver vote last Friday because it was really demonstrable. It's all elected officials, they're all mayors and councillors that are on the board of Metro Vancouver voting to establish a fee increase that will help to deliver over $30 billion worth of infrastructure. And I would say, and and some of these people I have a lot of respect for, and they might be listening to this, but I would say that most of them are not qualified to make that decision. And if you watch that meeting, it's quite, it demonstrates that. Uh, They don't understand the issues. The the consultation was completely uh, lacking in in terms of integrity as well as just genuine consultation. The financial analysis was TransLink did a financial analysis for their development fee. It was 120 pages and it was about a $1,500 a unit fee. Metro's goes up to $20,000 a unit on new housing. It was a 15 page analysis. And so we're starting to call that all into question and there's, there's more to come on that, but it's been, it's been interesting. So is it frustrating? Because I I feel like almost at all levels of government, like this is a super complicated topic, right? I mean, I feel like when even you think about like the provincial government and we've we've talked on our show about how like the housing minister has been focused on this issue for going on now 
coming oh, on. Oh, he's in two only years. had the, or, is yeah, that the file. He hasn't for, even had the job. For, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, is it? I mean, it must be kind of frustrating to be like, okay, we've been thinking about this and talking about this and and lobbying for years, and then it the file gets passed. And it's really, it must be really hard to kind of make sense of it. It is. Housing's really complicated, to be honest with you. It's, that's funny because housing, the, the, the physical construction of housing is actually in terms of the technology, innovation, things like that's like Neolithic. It's yeah. literally <laughs> like, you know, humans with a, a stick with a metal yeah. and a hammer and a nail. Like that's still right. how we're building yeah. housing, yeah. right? Uh, which is, 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 that's a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> but, um, but then, and so that's really quite simple. But how it gets financed, how the capital contributes, like how capital moves, um, policy frameworks, uh, the politics of it, it's actually really complex. And I think that most people, you know, average Joe, they have a really, they, they don't totally understand how it works. And so, and there's so many aspects of it, right? There's policy, there's politics, there's taxation, there's regulatory framework, there's financing. A lot of people don't understand how involved the banks are and the financial markets in actually getting our housing built. And that's becoming increasingly acute today. Because capital has completely eroded from the markets. And of course, interest rates where they are, it's making things very, very, you know, uneconomical to move forward. So when, you know, when you have these politicians like our current provincial housing minister, who I'm a big fan of, come in, they have to learn all of this, right? It's like, mm. it's like sort of breathing through a fire hose or, or, or yeah. whatever that saying is. And I think that this, they've done a pretty good job of listening, this particular government, both EB and Minister Kalan, they're doing a good job of listening. They're doing a good job of learning and not just listening to us, but listening to tenant advocacy groups, listening to nonprofits, listening to profit, for-profit developers and they're, and, and in listening to academic, they're trying to really learn and grasp the situation, which I appreciate and have a lot of respect for, but it's very complex. Right. And maybe this is a little bit out of your, your wheelhouse, but the BC government has now said that they're going to force municipalities to update their zoning to allow mm-hmm. for up to six yeah. units on a single family lot. Do you think that it was is good policy? Does it move the needle? Do you think we're going to be seeing a land rush potentially? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I, when we did this last, the previous city Vancouver Council had done the duplex for every lot. Yeah, and right. we talked about this, and so here we are again <laughs> um, with a with a little bit more aggressive policy. I don't, I. <laughs> I don't know that there's going to be a land rush. I think, number one, I, you know, the municipal governments now have to address this. And we got to figure out a whole bunch of rules around zoning, setbacks, height, FSR uh, exclusions, you know, percentage of lot that can be... There's all these different things that now have to be you know worked out. And so whether there's a rush on land to build six units on a single family lot near transit, I, I can't totally comment on that because that's not really where we play. I think the policy itself is a step in the right direction, 100%. My favorite part of the policy that was announced yesterday is the the wording that said if a project is in line with an official community plan the municipality and this is the most important words must not have a public hearing and that <laughs> in my mind is like uh, i i just i reread that statement and reread <laughs> that statement because public hearings what what we've been doing you think about the canby corridor 
And that was a policy that went through, there's three rounds of Canby Corridor, phase one, phase two, and phase three planning. They each went through, you know, two years of planning and public consultation, hundreds and hundreds of meetings with public groups and public interest groups, members of the public, and then adopted policy that is a plan. It's an official community plan, an official development plan, whatever you want to call it, neighborhood concept plan. And every single rezoning that's come forward before that or after that plan was adopted, has required a public hearing where people come out and fight again about it, right? right. And the Canby plan, I would say, is calmed down. You don't see too many people coming out to public hearings and things like that with the Canby plan. It's so widely adopted now, and you've seen so much. It's been going on for a long time. But the Broadway plan, so we just went through that. That was like five years. And every, almost every single development will require a public hearing again to have the fight again, to say there's too much traffic, there's too much high, there's shadowing, there's view cones and all this kind of stuff. And so that policy that just came forward is music to my ears in that regard, because just have the fight once, have everybody say their piece, make the decision, be political about it, do what you need to do or whatever, then let's move on. Right. And what we've been doing is just continuously fighting about the policy for years after the policy was adopted. Now, I don't quite understand the nuances of that statement that came out yesterday by the government. I don't know if that applies because they really were focused in on what they're calling SMU, which is small multi unit housing. I can't remember what the acronym stands for. And that OCP public hearing policy, I don't know if it, it we're unclear right now as to whether that applies only to the SMU or if that is any project that fits with an official community plan. So that's our kind of next question as industry. Right. Uh, so, so, so Bo, maybe shifting gears a little bit here, how's the real estate market <laughs> after 20 <laughs> minutes of uh, politics? Uh, yeah. um, the real estate market is challenging. Let's just say that. I think there's different, new, there's different components of the real estate market. We're obviously involved in residential, both for sale and for rent. So we build merchant, what we call merchant um, uh, housing, which is housing that we build to sell. Uh, we build housing that is goes into our portfolio that is purpose-built rental. We build industrial that goes into our portfolio. We build office, we build retail. And so you got to, I think probably for this, you probably want to focus more on residential. And I would say that the real estate, residential real estate market is challenged, is challenged right now. Um, on the, the condo pre-sale market, it's interesting because it seems like there's still some, there's still, that's still going. It's still happening. There is this idea that you can invest in a pre-sale today that isn't going to be built for three, four years. And, and some of these projects, I think it's even five years now. So it's almost being treated as an, uh, a hedge against inflation. Because the cost, the cost of delivering this housing just will not get cheaper. We are not seeing any stabilization in costs. Maybe stabilization, but we're not seeing sort of anything coming down. And I would say the biggest force there is labor. We have a, a, a massive and acute labor shortage, and that's really what's going to be keeping costs, in my mind anyway, the way they are. So it's not getting any cheaper. And people are also speculating that interest rates will stabilize in three, four, five years. And so people are they're still active in the pre-sale market. We've launched four or five projects in 2023. And we just launched one in Metrotown a week ago, a week and a half ago. We've done 100, I think we've written 115 deals, 105 or so are firm. You know, we have a long way to go. There's like a total of 
550 or 600 units in two that's towers. It, but still, that in a week and a half, you said it? Like, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Strong numbers. It is strong numbers. Yeah. And it's interesting because we're kind of jumping all over the place, but that's in Metro Town around the same time because there's a lot of people that had kind of product ready to go there. So we launched at the same time as Boza, Concord, Letting and McAllister was in the mix. Anthem was also had already launched, but they were still competing. And then um, Beatty at their Fraser Mills site, which is not Metro Town, but not far away in Coquitlam, also launched at the same time. And, you know, the, what was absorbed in a three to five week window was it must have been over six, 700 units. And so we were competing with one another. It was, yeah. it was actually quite wild where it was like, okay, we're going to drop our prices to this. And then everybody else does. And someone says they're going to increase their realtor incentives to this. And then everybody else does and purchase their incentives to this free storage locker, free parking stall or whatever. And so it's actually, it's, it's actually not a bad time to jump into the Metrotown market if you were interested in acquiring a presale and, and moving forward with that sort of inflationary hedge, if you will. The resale market, I would say, is far more impacted by what's going on with interest rates, availability of capital, financing, and things like that. And by the way, so I just presale, resale. Presale, just because we get through high volumes of presales, you still have to meet a presale test within 12 months. And the pre-sale test is for the banks. You have to qualify for construction financing. So you have to sell a certain amount of volume to qualify for that construction financing in the 12-month window, which is governed by REDMA, the Real Estate Marketing Act. And that's a problem unto itself because now we're getting into bigger projects these days mm. where we have to sell the same amount of real estate in 12 months as, say, a 40-unit project on Broadway. And it's just it's starting to cause some problems. So good volume on pre-sale. It still doesn't mean that those are all going to jump right into construction. I would say time will tell on that. The mo- Most of those developers I mentioned will probably be okay. Resale, yeah, it's tough. I think we're seeing people really struggling to qualify for mortgages. We're seeing appraisals not coming in at the price that the person has contracted the home for. And the stress test for people trying to get a mortgage is obviously way more than what it was because current mortgage rates plus whatever's required for the stress test is putting people's interest rate into the stratosphere. And so... We're seeing, you know, I think you guys are well uh, aware of the numbers on the resale, and and it, 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 there's big changes yep. going on there. So yeah, it's it's that's kind of my on the residential market. I'd say that's mm. my. It, would you say like so if if you were thinking about characteristics of a project that would be positive for for in in presale? So the longer the timeline is that is that like so concrete kind of five years out if you can like that's a that would be a hotter commodity? Yeah, for sure. And five years, that's a really long one. Like I would say three to four is probably what you'd see for an average right now of of concrete. And yeah, it seems that, yes, the long, they they like this long period to delivery because they're they're hedging against inflation, really. And they're speculating that interest rates will stabilize. It will, right now, when you buy a condo and you get a mortgage, the the rent's not covering your strata fees, taxes, and mortgage right now. So that's kind of out of whack. Right. Mm-hmm. So for investors, and I think people are speculating that that will come back into balance as well in that time period. So, and you know, you're putting deposits down at a staggered process. 
process through sort of 5%, then 10%, and another five or whatever the, the deposit structure is. And so it's a way for people to get into housing. It's a way for people to sort of hedge against inflation. And I'm sure there's all kinds of economists that have comments on that, but that's what, you know, people are walking into our sales center telling, saying yeah. they're doing. Yeah. And it's a way for people to, you know, speculate on interest rates effectively. Mm. So... So the interesting thing, because we just were talking to Andrew List from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, the, the economist with 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 uh, the Real Estate Board, and we were talking a lot about, you know, when pre-sale makes sense as essentially, you know, for the last decade or 15 years, people are, and before, but especially in the last, say, decade, like price appreciation is what people are betting on, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're in moving into an environment, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what prices do in the next, say, three to five, or maybe even the next decade, if it's if we're in a uh, a new normal that's different from the last decade. But what you're saying is actually it's not pr- they're not betting on price appreciation; they're betting on a hedge against inflation. That's kind of the new logic of of investing in presale. It seems like it, yeah, um, yeah. Which I've kind of honed in on what you just said as well, and something that I find interesting where. I don't, and it, it, the capital appreciation thing, I don't, I don't, it's too hard to speculate on that. I right. can't believe what the cost of a new one bedroom is in, you know, Vancouver City property. I never would have thought. No. And so where does it go from here? I have no idea. What I do know is the cost of that delivering that unit is going to go up. That's what I know. Right. Whether it stabilizes for a, maybe cost stabilized, maybe they even tick down 3%. It's going to go, that trend of an upward sort of trend on a graph will continue over the next decade. Here's why. Again, labor shortage. We have all kinds of things. Because we're globalized in terms of our supply chains and fuel and things like that, when there's conflict in the world, when there's different things going on, which seems to be quite common these days, it really impacts. We feel the impacts of these things or climate issues, right? Uh, a great example is when it was in Texas and they had that freeze a few years back that was, and and all the power went out everywhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of the contents that go into paint for resident, like paint for painting your house, were in these factories in Texas. And all of a sudden there was this massive shortage of paint. <laughs> and so it's these things that are happening more frequently that are causing issues on pricing. So it's labor, it's stuff like that on the Mm -hmm. supply chain and government fees, taxes and levies, they're not abating. And so the cost of delivery, I think, is going to continue to rise. And and I think that that's what a lot of we should be honing in on. We should be figuring out how to both control costs, but also innovate. We got to innovate. So cost of housing and and back to why people, there it's people seem to be speculating on that rather right. than some irrational capital appreciation because foreign buyers are going to come and all this kind of right, stuff. Right, right. That, that's so interesting. I love how that it's like literally there's like the collective wisdom of the market yeah, totally. kind of changes the, the flow in a, yeah. like there's a herd mm-hmm. shift where you're like, Oh, yeah, but that totally makes sense. But you know why what it teaches us is nobody's bigger than the market. Right. Nothing's bigger than the market. And we try to tell this to policymakers and politicians all the time that because what they're trying to do is control the market, right? Always with policy, right. regulatory framework. And you can't. You yeah. can't control the market. The, pe- the people, will they get together. There's information that's passed along faster than ever before. And this is the, like the new narrative all yeah. of a sudden, yeah. right? It's, yeah, so... Does this moment remind you of any any other moment, like in the market? 
Um, no, not really. I think that the, the, this is a quite a unique moment in time where we've had, you know, the pandemic that created its own wild set of circumstances where we had the supply chain issues. Um, we had the uh, labor was not, it wasn't so much a shortage issue as it was all of a sudden the drywall crew got COVID and they can't come in for two weeks and, you know, that and delays of projects. And then, but ultra low interest rates, which was really good for our industry and everybody utilized those interest rates to continue to engage in the delivery of housing. And then all of a sudden it just swings completely the other way. And so it's just wild actually trying to lead and navigate through that. So I, I can't think of another time in my career that it's been like this. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Have you, has there been, because we, we talked a little offline about, about this, but one thing I'm just thinking out loud here about you know, you're saying there's certain development industry players like everywhere else that are feeling the pinch right now. Like it's a tough, mm-hmm. tough environment. I'm just thinking if we're in a higher for longer environment and, you know, there's a calling of the herd, essentially, it's it's a pretty tough area to play in. Like, do you see this as there's going to be fewer developers in two, three, five years? And, and what does that mean for large scale projects that, you know, you can't just be like, I built three houses, I'm going to build a high rise. <laughs> uh, like, how does that play out in terms of dynamics in the in the industry? Yeah, it's a really good question. So over the last decade, we saw a lot of groups jump into real estate development. We saw groups that were institutional in nature, jump into actual re- real estate development. We saw groups that were just on the finance side of real estate development, privately that is, jump in to actually build out development and construction teams. And, and then we saw foreign uh, capital come and establish themselves here to get into real estate development. And then we saw all of the, you know, the household names continue to operate. Um, and I think we are seeing, well, it's, common knowledge in the newspapers, et cetera, that there are a number of the foreign capital actors that are struggling um, to maintain their land portfolios. We're seeing lots of foreclosures and lots of receivership deals and things like that. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see what 
five years from now looks like in terms of the playing field and who's still there. I The household names um, that you know, that I know, uh, I would include ourselves in that group of people. I, I think that you're still going to, they've been here for many, in many cases, 40, 50 years or whatever. They're going to be here for another 40 or 50 years. And they, the way they manage their business, we all understand the complexities of doing business here in the lower mainland of BC. That's the other thing, right? Is that this is what we're trying to explain to the federal government because they often engage, they'll, they'll phone up, you know, an advocacy group at an industry association in Ottawa or Ontario and say, Hey, we're thinking about this policy. What do you think? What they think and what we think about the policy is much different. Our market's very different. Our regulatory framework's very different. And we were engaging in pre-sale condominium development here in Metro Vancouver almost a decade before mm-hmm. anywhere else in Canada, anywhere else in North America, for that matter. Right. So our policies adapted and evolved to accommodate that. And so we operate in, I'm, I, I'm not, I want, I want to be very clear. We are not more sophisticated as operators and people, but we operate in a more sophisticated market. And so the groups that have been operating in this market for decades and decades are very well versed in doing so. The groups that are coming in and thinking that they can operate here because it's just like where they came from, that's where there's issues. Mm. And that's where you're seeing, you know, failings and things like that. So it's a long answer to your question. I don't know what the playing field looks like in five years. I think, you know, some of the boutique groups or some of the groups that maybe weren't well capitalized or had a good understanding of how to operate here, you may not see them. Mm. Some, you know, may grind it out and survive, but the household names, they're they're all going to be here. Right. So, so in this market, I'm just thinking back to this idea of of pre-construction for your average mom and pop out there that that's thinking about it. You bet on a household name. Yes, <laughs> like that's important right now because who knows if the person building is even going to be around in in a couple of years. And I feel like that's always been strong advice, right? Like mm-hmm. the tried and true. Uh, I know you're active in Metro Town. I know West Group's launching uh, W16 right mm-hmm. at 16th and Canby. So bet on, bet on a strong name. Bet on an area where where if Bo Jarvis was out there putting his money down, mm. betting on or hedging <laughs> against inflation. What neighborhood are you buying or, a, or area a condo for one of his five kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, my kids are going to have to buy their own condo. <laughs> um, let's get that. We'll get that out there right now. I hope they're listening right now. Second of all, um, so you asked me this question last time, <laughs> and. You just asked it though, in, is it with a nuance and that's pre-sale, but my answer on an investment remains the same as what I told you last time. And that is a condo in downtown Vancouver. Nothing has changed since the last time I was on your podcast. Right. There are so many condos in downtown Vancouver that in my mind are under replacement value right now. That's been one of the sound bites. That's one of one of our most used sound bites. I Ta- think. We, talking we, we bring that up already. Yeah, I, I, I just uh, things changed. And interestingly enough, and I was just looking at this yesterday, so I have it top of mind. But the new sales ratios came out seven hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars downtown is at a thirteen percent sales ratio. Yeah. I think sixteen of one hundred and twenty units There's sold last really month. Good deals. It's at some, crazy. Like, at like yeah. some like gold. Yeah, buildings yeah. Right now I surf it all the time on MLS just yeah. going, look at this. Oh my God. And the rents that. are up. Like the rents are up yeah. so dramatically yeah, yeah, yeah. that it, it it's yeah. like it. I actually don't think like I haven't ran the numbers, but I don't think the cap has really changed much 
from 2017 or no. whatever, you know, like, yeah, yeah, totally. And I think part of downtown too is still this, you know, there's obviously there's increased instances of crime and there's a lot of issues, social issues that really um, are amalgamate in the downtown core um, because that's where a lot of services are and things like that. And, and that's contributing, I think, a little bit to what's going on. But at the end of the day, the city of Vancouver is not going anywhere. I don't mean the city of Vancouver as a, a governing body. I mean, like geographic, you know, city of Vancouver. Right. And it's going to, and I think that's why it's a good investment if you're thinking long-term. So this is a question we, we kind of talked about how, you know, predicting what's going to happen with capital appreciation is, is, is not what, Fool's game. It's a fool's game, maybe. But historically, we've seen, you know, the Metro metro Vancouver area, call it close to double almost every 10 years. And right now we're in this kind of weird moment. Does, Does investing in real estate in Vancouver still make sense in your mind? I think we have to... Yes, but I qualify that that answer. Real estate investment is not meant to be short-term investments. You're not meant, it was never meant to be a commodity and, and flipped. And, you know, real estate was always a long-term hold, just like a bond that you might have in your portfolio. And I think that's where we've really gone wrong. I think it's actually contributed to the housing crisis, quite frankly. And where you, you know, you know you're in a bad place when you get into a taxi and the taxi driver's telling you about the more most recent presale <laughs> he flipped. Or when you're being served at a restaurant and the server's telling you about, you know, the most recent presale that they flipped or whatever, right? Like right. that's just, and not that they shouldn't be participating in investing in real estate. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is real estate should be long-term. It really should. It always has been. It's only in this, call it last two decades, that it's become more of this short-term idea, capital appreciation. And I think it's really due to unique supply and demand dynamics. But to answer your question, I think that investing in real estate in Vancouver uh, long-term is absolutely a great investment. But you got to be in it for the long-term. And it's going to go up and down and it's cyclical and it's going to do this kind of stuff. But, you know, you're paying down a mortgage, the principal of your mortgage along the way, and there's going to be a general capital appreciation along the way, but it's long-term. Fantastic. You know, I did want to talk about the Canby Corridor. I feel like we don't, we haven't talked all that much about the the Canby Corridor. It, just for listeners who are seeing, you know, they've witnessed all the construction, but, you know, at Oak Ridge, it's still, it's clear <laughs> what's going on. But some people, it's like just a fog of what's what's happening there. Can you talk a little bit about the the changes, the three phases over the last decade and what you think the Canby Corridor is going to look like, say, in 2030, 2035? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so we participated in the advocacy and the Canby Corridor in every single phase. I think that it, well, it all started because of the subway, obviously, right? Right. It actually, there's a lot of debate around how that unfolded, but the the Canby planning process actually unfolded after the subway was sort of under construction, all this kind of stuff. But I think that we've had three phases. One was just down Canby, and then each phase has kind of gone further out from the arterial that is Canby and to make up the what we refer to as the entire Canby corridor. Uh, And I think it's like Oak 
is the boundary all the way. I don't know what the eastern boundary is. And so I think that we, you're already, if you drive down Canby today, obviously on the arterial, on Canby itself, you've seen significant change over the last decade. You see six-story buildings, eight-story buildings. You mentioned Oak Ridge. These are uh, Canby and Marine, where there's all the towers at the SkyTrain station there. That's mm-hmm. all part of the Canby plan. And so that, you're going to see that, is what it looks like there on the arterial. What I think you're going to see more and more of, and if you drive through the neighborhoods, you already are, these townhome developments, row homes, and all that kind of stuff, that that whole, that's, you're just going to see more of that, right? Because it's all zoned for that. Uh, closer to Oak Ridge, you're gonna, there's more tower zonings there that you're going to see. So you're going to see, Oak Ridge will be an urban sort of hub there. There's a SkyTrain station. There's obviously a lot of community or um, community amenities as well as commercial amenities. And so you're going to see much more density there and intensification. But yeah, I would say the Canby plan in general is a pretty decent plan from a plan, urban planning perspective, how it was arrived at and then how it's been executed on. It's, hmm. it's, it, the outcome is as it should be. Right. Yes. And, and so when I think of it, it's like there's certain areas along Canby that, you know, were more single family. Your guys' project at 16th feels like that's a, more of a boutique product in kind of what we would call Canby Village, right? Like it's an established kind of like, hey, this is an awesome location. You know what you're going to get. Is that how, is that what attracted you to that location specifically or? You yeah, talk, or if it, maybe maybe it was bought in the eighties. No, no, we actually. So that was bought as a portfolio of uh, gas stations, and there's we, you know one uh, one of our projects is just completing right now Dunbar Thirty Ninth, Broadway Alma, Fourth and McDonald. There's a number of these these gas stations, um, and so they were all in really great West Side locations, and you know we there we were all there was assembly strategy for each site. The West 16, W16, we couldn't assemble further. So it became more of a boutique project. But as you say, Canby Village, we love Canby Village. Right. We have a site, uh, you know, two blocks west that's referred to as the Balfour block that's um, like just beyond the synagogue off of Oak Street there. Same kind of reason, right? We really believe in that area. We believe in the amenities. We believe in the neighborhood. There are awesome communities there. Um, and Canby Village is like, it's pretty cool. And there's mm-hmm. hasn't really, uh, notwithstanding there's been a lot of development through the Canby Corridor, Canby Village has remained largely untouched. And this is really one of the first projects in the village. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty excited about it. Obviously, we got Olsen Kundig as the architect, which is drawing some attention to it. And it's, and it's a neat development. Really, really cool. What are your thoughts? And, and it just made me think, because there are so many amazing areas on the West side. And we've talked a lot on, you know, it used to be, a, call it a decade ago, where people would constantly talk about this relationship, this kind of push-pull relationship between the East side and the West side. And now we're seeing, you know, areas like Mount Pleasant that are trading at the same price per square foot probably are pretty close to, you know, something you'd be building maybe in Dunbar if it was equal spec, right? What are your thoughts on like the gap in the market and uh, between the east side and the west side and maybe the future of of each marketer? Yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of I remember 
when there was a, a big gap and it was like the East side was, it was different. Yeah. Um, that gap over the last 10, 15 years, my observation has um, compressed. It's still there. You know, you look at some pro- newer product that's deeper into the West side, whether it be UBC, Dunbar, you know, Kitsilano, et cetera, that I would say is in the 1700 to $1,900 ish a square foot. It's more, it's more kind of luxury or whatever. Sure. You see different packages with the amenities in the buildings as well as appliance packages and all that kind of stuff. And then over to the east side, we have a project at 12th and Commercial. Uh, it's it's wood frame. So the, the numbers that I just quoted, I would call those concrete numbers because on the west side, you, you can actually build low-rise at concrete and make the numbers work. As when we move to the east side, we're still engaging in wood frame development, but we're selling wood frame Again, because we have to to make the numbers work, but you know, fourteen hundred and fifty, fourteen hundred dollars a square foot, right? And that's wood frame. If that was concrete, it would be a bit more. So that gap's starting to compress. And I think that that when I drive and cross the border between West Side and East Side, is the Street Ontario that's kind of the divider? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I go um, across Ontario uh, into the, you see like there's beautiful, sing modern single family homes being built that are super architectural yeah. and coffee shops. Spring. Like it's very, it's it's changed significantly. There, there. I was walking like near Adam used to live what near on like close to Slocan, and there's oh, yeah. a passive house being built over there, like close to the P&E that is like, you know, ultra modern there when I lived there. Yeah. It's just, (laughs) but it's unbelievable. You're like, wow, this is like a point gray house being built in Renfrew. Uh, Yeah. 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 For sure. So it's interesting. Yeah. And do you think, and and do you think there's a a day coming where we'll see that gap widen again and and there'll be more of an emphasis on the East side? Or do you think it's just leveled out and we're just going to see kind of a more level playing field? across Vancouver. I think, you know, point gray is always going to be point gray. Right. Right. Like it's, it's that that's never I think though it will be more level, right? Like there's 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 only so much we have a pretty small land base for city of Vancouver proper. Uh there's more and more people coming here. They're really when you drive an east side, west side street, there's still tree lined streets. You still have views of the mountains. Like it doesn't it makes no difference, right? And I think I think that it will get more level. I do. Absolutely. Within Vancouver City proper for sure. If anything, I think it's almost families driving the, the price points. In a lot of ways, right? People looking for families and community and uh, at least yeah. that's like, you know, when you sit down with someone and you go like, where do you want it? If they have a budget mm-hmm. for most areas. Well, where are your friends like, are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Maybe maybe as a final question, Bo, and we've kind of circled this a couple of times, but we'll we'll ask you straight out. What does the market do in the next one, three, and five years? Ask <laughs> <laughs> you straight up. Next one, three, and five years. Yeah. Let's we'll start think, with a one. <laughs> yeah. Again, pre-sale, resale, different markets. I think that um, I think in the next one year, pre-sales will probably continue to kind of do what they're doing, right? Is my guess. In the next one year. In the next one year, resales, same thing. It's going to be a bit of a struggle. You're going to see more listings than sales. Um, people are having a diff- more of a difficult time qualifying for mortgages. There's less capital out there. Um, and so next one, three years, um, I, it's hard to say on the pre-sale side of things what will happen in the next three years because that dynamic seems to be quite volatile. Mm-hmm. It's, it's odd where all, you know, you can, you can launch a project and you have volume, uh, and then you launch a project, um, three quarters later and there's no volume. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, it's hard to understand that sometimes. On the resale market in three years, I see it getting better. We still, you know, we still have lots of people coming here. We have, I was at an, um, an RBC event last night with the CEO of RBC and they're going through their acquisition of HSBC, which is going through the approval hurdles and they're really close. And they said that they are bringing a whole bunch of jobs, really high paying, like banking industry jobs up from LA and from out east into their Vancouver office. Oh, wow. Um, and, and they want to, you know, they're buying HSBC for some very strategic reasons. HSBC was investing their portfolio of capital into certain things that RBC wasn't really engaged in, mm-hmm. but RBC is highly interested in being engaged in that. And that's why HSBC was attractive to them. And so we're seeing more and more people come here that are, you know, that have well-paying jobs. Then we have immigration occurring and we're getting our share of immigration, et cetera, et cetera. And I see that's going to put, you know, pressure on existing stock of housing. So in three years, I see interest rates probably cooling. Um, you know, we, we have to delineate short overnight rates or short-term rates versus uh, long-term rates. They're both, one's based on Bank of Canada, one's based on long-term treasury yields, and those are doing some weird things these mm-hmm. days. Pretty volatile. Uh-huh, super volatile. And so, but uh, subject to that, like if, that's, if that stabilizes, and we believe it should, then we see things probably picking back up again on the resale market. And, and hopefully it becomes a little bit normalized in three years, right? Where it's a little bit balanced. Five years, I don't fucking know. (laughs) That's too long. That's too long. Do do you think, and I mean, we just because we've been thinking about this a lot, but does this, like in resale, at least from from our perspective, it feels a lot like last, it feels similar to November of last year, where there's like the moment of uncertainty. Do you think, first of all, is there the potential of a cut next year? What are your thoughts on that? We anticipate a cut. Um, I mean, again, last night, CEO of RBC suggested Q1, Q2, 23, where rates will start to be cut. We're starting to see um, consumer expectations shift. We're starting to see manufacturing sector shift, like downward trend, right? Right. And so with that, and obviously we saw inflation kind of tick down a couple basis points for the last reporting. And so I think that we anticipate rates will start to shift down. Again, the short-term rates, see what the long-term stuff does as they're separated. But um, I think it, it, so much of this is sentiment as well, right? Totally. I, I remember when the Bank of Canada did their first two holds and then inflation ticked back up and they raised again after that. I remember be, saying before those two holds, I said, you watch, I think the Bank of Canada will hold and we're going to start to see a pickup. This was, I think, in January. Yep. We're going to start to see a pickup in our sales centers. Sure enough, pickup in our sales center traffic. You watch, they'll hold again. And we're going to start to see people putting pen to paper. They held again. We started doing all kinds of deals. Like we have our daily reports and you can go back and like just see the trend every single day. Literally Jamie. like correlated. Yeah, exactly. totally correlated. And so I think that if we have, you know, if the bank, if we stabilize the environment, that sentiment will change and they'll, there'll be a higher level of comfort for making that type of investment. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking in like the last, call it 18 months, the deal of la- the deal, the best time to buy real estate in the last 18 months was probably November of last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. November, December. And if we're in that moment right now, and you think if the bank holds a few times and then potentially we see a cut in Q2 or whatever, you could see the market take back. Adam, give the listeners your number. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, Bo, we we have this segment called the Five Wire, five lighthearted questions that we end every show with. Can you stick around for that? Yeah, yeah, I'm good for time. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, 
That sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the Lower Mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. One book that you've read recently that you would recommend for our listeners. Oh, I remember last time I mentioned the Patty Smith Just Kids book. Oh, uh, right. Um, hmm. You know what? I reread. I've been rereading, uh, rereading a lot of the classics, like To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I actually say To Kill a Mockingbird. I reread it, and I, I the, I've re- been rereading a lot of these things, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, all these. And um, th- there's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm part of this business forum and you should see the ch- the WhatsApp chat. It's like, listen to this podcast, read this leadership book. <laughs> and, and I'm always like, just pause, like read the great literature, read Hemingway, yeah. read Steinbeck. Um, and, and that's also, uh, Steinbeck is one of my favorite authors, but there's, we, we, you know, we're, we're tribe, we're a tribe and tribes passed on history and stories by telling stories, right? Tell in history and information and knowledge by telling stories. And you read these old books and it's incredible what's in there. So To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. everybody yeah. should reread it. And, and kids, if you if the book report is due tomorrow, the movie is pretty good. Yeah, too. the movie is good. <laughs> Sydney uh, Poitier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's funny that in those, I can imagine in the WhatsApp chat or whatever, it's like, you guys got a retraction. You're like, have you heard of Tom Sawyer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's exactly how it is. Yeah. Uh, in the last few years, and we this is the same question, but uh, maybe something's changed. So uh, since you've been on last, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Mm. Uh, uh, cheesy, I guess, but trying uh, trying to express gratitude. There's a lot of crazy shit going on in the world right now. And yeah. I think that we're pretty lucky to be where we are. And um, and sometimes I wonder how that came to be. But um, I'm pretty grateful for what we got going on here. Fantastic answer. What have you been binge watching lately or a movie recommendation? I binge. I actually, I, I binge watch lots of stuff. Um, that, that's just, can we pause to say that's insane that you're the president of West Group and you have five kids and you're like, man, I got... I can binge watch. Yeah, like, this is like also to kill a mockingbird. Yeah. I'm going to put that back in front of me. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how I actually um, I use my remote control and fast forward stuff through stuff sometimes. Oh yeah, um, but there's su- such great content out there on you know these streaming networks, and there's so much. One show that I um, will say that I watched not long ago, and it's a bit. I don't think that it. Um, Critically, it was acclaimed, but I don't think it had a lot of take up. It was called Zero Zero Zero. I think it was on Amazon Prime, and it was about Gabriel Breen um, was one of the stars of it. Um, And it was about this family that was involved in facilitating drug smuggling through their um, container ships, like a big big Ooh. freighters and and it followed the drugs from like a cartel in South America all the way to Italy so the whole where the supply mafia, and it was chain, just yeah. really really oh, cool. well done really well done we were just talking there was a book about the about that where you learn apparently you learn a ton about the yeah. shipping like import export and it's wild and we actually were at a thing with Ken Sim where he kind of off the cuff said isn't it crazy that but Vancouver police have no, no abilities uh, at no the port, port to no port police. Yeah, or the or the feds are very lackadaisical. Apparently, yeah. is what he was 
implying for sure. Favorite band uh, or music you're currently listening to? Mm, I listen to a lot of music too. I, there's a there's a website. It's an aggregator called Hype Machine, and I go on Hype Machine often and just flood through the posts to find new music. And I share it with my kids, and we all get into music, and we listen to a lot of music in the house. There's a band from the 60s and 70s out of New Zealand called The Clean. And they want to, it's probably one of my favorite songs that I play constantly right now. It's called Anything Could Happen. And it's a, it's a fantastic track. The Clean? The Clean. And they're based out of New, they were in New Zealand in the 60s and 70s. They were very popular there. Uh, and this band or this song, Anything Could Happen, is fantastic. That's a great one. I can see Matt. We're both going to be putting that on yeah. Spotify here when you leave. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, something that you have purchased for under $1,500 that's had a positive impact on your life. I remember last time it was my DeWalt leaf blower. <laughs> and, and this time of year, we're, we're back there. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, under $1,500 that has changed my life. I can't even think of anything. I don't, I feel, I, I haven't really... I'm not an early adopter of like techie things or I'm not like, you know, we just bought a Bosch. Dishwasher? No, battery powered uh, pressure washer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I haven't tried it yet though. So unfortunately, oh. I, yeah. So that's a tough question for me. I'm Battery not a, powered pressure washer. I feel like the pressure wouldn't be... Uh, well, it does have lower pressure than yeah. the fuel powered ones, but it's more for like quick... You know, like we have a fuel-powered yeah. pressure washer, and you got to drag it yeah, out some yeah, wheels, yeah. and you got to mix the gas with oil and all this kind of stuff. And this one, I'm like, okay, I just need to clean this one little section of the patio. My <laughs> wife's driving me nuts, and I was like, so I got this battery-powered one, but I haven't tried it yet, so I don't. Know. That's a good one. We'll, yeah. have to, we'll have to report back on that uh, if we can get you back. How can people find out more about what you're up to, and of course, uh, West Group Properties, and um, yeah, everything. Westgroup.ca um, is obviously our website. Follow us on social media. We are all, we're always trying to be out there in the media and doing things like this, and not just me, but our entire leadership group to just sort of position ourselves in the marketplace as thought leaders and to try and quell the narrative of the sort of the evil developer. We consider ourselves community builders. We consider ourselves very transparent and open with our information and our data. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's us. Call us anytime if you have questions about real estate development. I meet with, literally meet with people sometimes that just call randomly who want to learn and understand. Even our detractors, I'll call them and say, hey, I saw you on social media say this. I'm happy to share with you what the reality is if you want to spend the time with me. But, <laughs> so, but the Duke didn't come down and meet you. That's, you know, <laughs> no. that's a debate we could have on the show if uh, if if he's listening. Yeah, uh, which he's not. <laughs> well, thanks again, Bo. Uh, again, Bo Jarvis, West Group. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, great to have you back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with president of West Group, Bo Jarvis. Always enjoy having Bo on the program. Uh, doesn't disappoint. I feel like we could have ran extremely long uh, with that conversation. Yeah, you know what? There's a couple things about uh, about that. One is I feel like he's just a really insightful guy. I also feel like he's kind of a standout in the industry, maybe notably by his book selection. 
Right. But I think that <laughs> speaks to to his kind of unique place in in the industry, at least from my vantage point. Like Bo is definitely himself in a very clear and confident way that is unique. He's known mostly as the president of West Group, but now I know him as the guy who introduced me to the clean, which was a great band, which now I'm listening to. <laughs> okay, uh, quite a so bit. I almost said shout out to uh, Vancouverite Matt Goody, who wrote the book oh, on the clean. So he uh, wrote on the clean. Well, on on I believe the record label that the clean was on in New Zealand. This is how obscure this topic, or maybe not so obscure. But there is a friend of the show who wrote a book on a record label in the 80s out of New Zealand. And uh, I messaged him after and he's like, oh, man, the compilation album is the best. And it's literally called the compilation. It's not a compilation. So, yeah, the good album. And it's got that song on it. Clever. That's like my, my my solo album that I called Duets. Uh, not, not actually. Uh, okay, so what do we got before we cut for the day? What else do we have for the day? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. I'm spending a lot of time on this site right now, you know, going back, really finding some amazing, I guess, you know, we've been doing it almost a decade. It all lives there. There's so much useful information for everyone. You're doing a master's degree on that side. I'm right doing now. a, ma I'm, de yeah, not only in real estate, but uh, just cleaning it up. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a labor of love. Anyway, what do we have over there? We have all the information that we've produced over a decade. We also have, of course, the Livewire. This is our weekly mailer. You want the stats that you we're do. sending out month over month, sales ratios included. I went back and listened to Andrew Liss's podcast from last week. His point about inventory being the deciding factor in this market has really stuck with me. And I've been doing deep dives on inventory. We send stuff out every month that will outline exactly where we're at for inventory. It's easy to understand. Once you understand how to how to understand it, it's very easy to just monitor what's going on with inventory. Exactly. So that's the live wire at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Of course, we also have tried and true private client services. Yeah, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Sign up for your own free account today. I will actually just want to double click on the old snap stats sales ratios that we send out. Because one thing about it is we break it down by the sub market in the report. So when you're actually looking at it, this is what's what's great. And what I love about it is you can see where the best opportunities are in the market, right? You can see where if you're a buyer, and you know, you want to know the mark, the markets that you're considering, what are the sales ratios doing? Is it, is it an aggressive buyer's market? Well, and just to highlight what Andrew List outlined, you know, we're at between 10,000 to 12,000 listings. Uh, a, a truly balanced market is 15,000. In the 90s, we used to run at 20,000, if you right. can believe it. So we're, I, and, and I just put this up on VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, a new update uh, on his the blog post we put with Andrew List, but pushing towards 12,000 right now uh, is where inventory is at. But it depends on what neighborhood you're in. It depends on what type of property. There's some real opportunities there. And while that one number is very useful, digging down, digging deeper, sub-markets and areas are important. 
What, what's Dustin? What else say that something about the just like there's no national weather, there's no national real estate. This is, um, I think the biggest thing is is like even in in Metro Vancouver. I thought you were gonna say <laughs> the variables back, and so am I. <laughs> that, that's one of my favorite Woodhouseians. Uh, but here, here's the thing: just like really, even Metro Vancouver, like you know, Kits is operating differently than. Burnaby or well, yeah, right. I I actually think Kits is operating differently than Yale Town or Mount Pleasant. Of course, of course, you got it. You got to know what's going on in your submarket. And Matt, if someone wants to talk to you about a submarket, they can call at any time, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And of course, we got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com because... Kokomo, the dream's still alive. Oh, it's and still alive. Yeah. I know. We, we're not talking about it enough. It's oh, still, I know. It these is interest rates are killing me, but it's still alive. Yeah, it's still alive. <laughs> uh, have a great week. And we're back uh, next week from Kokomo Studios with some really great, great conversations. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 